I've never heard well, and the older I get, the less well I hear. So that when I go to crowded places like a restaurant or any busy place, and there's a lot of confusion going on, I'm liable to order soup instead of a sandwich or no telling what I get when I order things. And I find that I'm embarrassed by always saying in a crowd, huh? I guess that's a sign of getting on up there in years, as they say. But it's not just deaf people say, huh? I read this passage of scripture that was suggested in the lectionary for our discussion this morning for my preaching. And I read it through and I said, huh? Then I read it through a a second time First time because I was puzzled, and the second time I read through and I said, huh? And I was surprised. Still said the same thing, and finally I read it through a third time, and I said, huh? (laughs) Because I was interested. Not only deaf people say, huh, but interested people and concerned people and people who are puzzled say, huh? And this passage of Scripture is one of those passages that cause you to say, huh, for whatever reason, because you're concerned, because you're wonder, in wonderment, or because you're excited about what it has to say. It's one of those passages that's so packed with ethical and moral statements that you just have to stand back and read it a second time. And even after the second time, you say, huh. Paul, in no other place, I don't think, in his writings, is a succinct in telling us how to behave as Christians. So I take this passage and I try to organize it into some sermons with three points and a poem, the kind of regular sermon that you have. But I recognize that this thing is not real orderly. I don't want to organize it all. I'm not as bad as my niece. I've got a niece who organizes everything. Her, go to her cupboard and look at the vegetables and everything's alphabetically. Beans, corn, you know, syrup, spice rack, same way. Basil, cinnamon, garlic. It's really nice to be able to find everything that way, but it drives me nuts for, to be around someone. Thank God there are people like this, accountants and librarians and engineers and those of you who have to think precisely and organize everything. And I attempted to do that with this scripture passage and realized it just couldn't be organized right. So I thought I'd do what the old preacher always does and he just do what uh, preach from the Bible, just preach from the Bible. And they go verse by verse. And I've put the scripture text here in the bulletin to sort of help you as much as anything else know where I am so you don't have to look at your watch and tell how far it's going to be before I get to the end. But this, this passage is just filled with goodies. Filled with goodies. It begins by saying, let love be genuine. Now, you've, you've recognized the kind that's not genuine. The fake smile, the slimy handshake, the grab you around the shoulder, how you doing, Brother Kirk? And you're thinking the whole time, uh-oh, what does he want from me? Ulterior motives. Paul says, let your love Love be genuine, above board, up front. If you're going to have any kind of intimacy in life, your love has to be genuine. And people can't be second-guessing what you mean when you say, I love you. 
Hold fast, hate what is evil, it says. Hold fast to what is good. You can't hold both with one hand. If you're filled with evil, then you're not going to have your hands empty to take that which is good. Hate's a strong word. But Paul uses it here. Hate that which is evil. Hold on to that which is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Two parts. Love one another. Love is personal. It's easy to say, I love the world. I love the world. But sometimes it's hard to love people. Preachers and those of us who work with people, teachers and others, doctors, nurses, often have a little joke among ourselves. We say, this is a great job if it wasn't for people. But that's how love is is transfixed and that's how life is transformed when one person loves another. Thank God for institutions and agencies and nonprofits and churches that help people in the plural. But if love is to be genuinely discovered, it is discovered over a coffee cup. It is discovered by a person tutoring a child. It is discovered one on one. And the second part of this verse says... With brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. We are family. Think of the song about that, isn't there? We are family. And as in any family, there's the, there's the good kids and the bad kids. There's the stupid things that we do and the embarrassing things that we do. There are the wonderful things that we do and the things that give us a thrill. But we are family, and church is family. I never will forget the young girl who came to my office when I was campus minister and told me she was pregnant. She was a college student. And after we talked a while and I heard her story and she cried, I said, you really need to tell somebody, somebody back home. I said, how about your parents? And she said, no, they'd never understand. What about your pastor? Pastor, no, he's, he's too holy. What about the rest of the church? And when I said church, she sat bolt upright in the, in the chair and looked at me through squinted eyes. I never will forget it. Church, she said. That bunch of hypocrites, they would be gossiping about it all over the community. And it was not time to weep. That a girl was in a situation that was bad enough, but that she had... No family she felt like she could trust. No pastor who she felt, whom she felt like she could tell in her church that she didn't felt like cared either. Of all places in the world, this should be the place. And the family and the family of God should be the place where we know what it is to have brotherly affection for one another. So that when we fail... We can tell one another and know that we will be cared for. And when we celebrate, we can celebrate together as well. The next passage says, outdo one another in showing honor. The highest medal you can get in the United States in service is the medal of honor. And perhaps that ought to be true in churches as well. I know that your church has the team ministry as deacons. I know a church that has that ministry, and it's divided up by what you think your gifts are. And 
this group of deacons, there were several people who felt like, yeah, the deacons often deal with people who have death and dying and nursing homes and some rather sad, difficult experiences in life. But we want to do a celebration team where they would honor people in the church who had anniversaries, birthdays, promotions, graduations. Anytime you have picture or name appeared in the paper unless it was that you got, got caught and were in jail. They'd put your picture on the bulletin board and they would acknowledge you in the newsletter. It was a way of honoring each other. Never flag in your zeal, the passage, the next verse says. As a man who's helped families work through their marriage in difficult times, I recognize that uh, without zeal and enthusiasm, a marriage soon uh, goes bad. A couple has to work at maintaining that level of enthusiasm. And the same thing is true with the church. Any institution that's growing has someone who at the leadership or the institution itself has a sense of zeal and enthusiasm about it. Paul says, never flag in your zeal. Always be enthusiastic. No one wants to be a part of a church that's living on old zeal or remembered zeal. It likes to be a part of a church that has current enthusiasm and zeal. The next verse says, be a glow in the spirit, serve the Lord. These two go together, being in the spirit and serving the Lord. A lot of us know people who are in the spirit, who are enthusiastic and filled with ecstasy and clap their hands and raise their hands and sing loud songs of praise. And there's nothing wrong with that, but one old wag said about those kind of folks one time, it's not how high you jump, but it's how straight you run when you hit the ground. But some of us know people who run straight, but they never have any real passion, any real zip, any real spirit about them. Paul says, you have to have both. Be a glow in the spirit, but serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. A lot is said about hope today in politics, but folks, the church is the, is a source of hope. The Christians have been talking about hope ever since the very beginning. Because especially in tribulation or hard times, hope is the only thing we have sometimes to hold on to. And prayer is that which fuels hope. And patience is the evidence of hope. It's easy for Christians to be patient when they have hope because they know that ultimately they and their life and history itself will come to a redemptive conclusion because Christ is at the very center of our life. Contribute to the needs of the saints, Paul says. In a world that is bent on getting, this is a reminder that we need To be bent on giving. Practice hospitality. Now hospitality in our day is 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 a word about an industry. An innkeeper says I'm in the hospitality business. A maid at a motel says I'm in the hospitality business. A waitress says I'm in the hospitality business and rightly so. But it's a shame that it's only a business. In biblical times, even today in the Mideast, hospitality is a part of uh, 
the way people think about life, inviting strangers, even enemy, into their tent, into their home, feeding and taking care of them in difficult times. Perhaps we need to practice hospitality. And then there's this hard verse. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. It seems natural for us as human beings to take out our sword and cut the ear off of the guy who threatens us. And Paul says you're not only not to do that, but you're to bless people who persecute you. Jesus, of course, had said that already. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Compassion and empathy are the mark of the Christian. We celebrate with our loved ones. We have those photo ops, those Kodak moments. When people walk across the stage or stand in front of the preacher. and Those happy times. But maybe more intimacy is developed when we weep with each other. The church is the place we can do that, as well as the family. The Christian faith is one which invites people to come at all levels, when you're happy and when you're sad. Lady said, "Uh, I see that you and Joe are friends. Why is that? Well, I see you laughing and talking together. Yes, we laugh and talk together, but we're not friends. Well, I see you laughing and talking. You're not friends. No, we're not friends because... We have not wept together. There is a sense in which until you weep with someone, you you have not developed a level of intimacy that's important in a genuine and true friendship. That's the reason marriage is, is, I think, often a very welding relationship because we are able to weep together as husband and wife, as brothers and sisters But the church ought to have that opportunity too. It distresses me when we don't share with each other our hurts and our bruises. We sometimes are embarrassed by the fact that we have some infirmity in our life. But the church is the one place we ought to feel honest enough to weep with one another. Live in harmony with each other. When the choir loses harmony... It, we, our ear flinches when the church loses harmony, our heart flinches. Even the heart of God flinches when we lose harmony. I've seen it too often, and you have too, when churches and families lose harmony. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be Conceited. This is one of the things I loved about Jesus. He went around touching lepers. It was against the law, but not against his love. He went around touching lepers. Repay no one evil for evil. You say, well, I've heard that before. He just said that. Well, maybe you needed to hear it again. Maybe it's like we had a dog named Bingo one time. Yeah, I know. B-I-N-G-O. Bingo was his name. We had a dog named Bingo, and he taught him tricks. 
He could do all kinds of tricks. And there was a friend out in my front yard one time, and I was showing him Bingo's tricks. And Bingo was doing, going through the repertoire. And just about the time I told Bingo to sit, Bingo saw a cow in the field next door. And nothing Bingo loved more than chasing cows. And I said, sit. Bingo was gone. I said, sit. Bingo was still gone. And I said, sit. And Bingo was in the field with the cow. And my friend looked at me and grinned. He said, that's a very obedient dog you have there, but he's a little hard of hearing, isn't he? (laughs) So the biblical word is not hear, but hearken, which is hearing and obeying. So maybe what Paul is trying to tell tell us when he says this twice is to reemphasize, listen, listen to what I'm saying here. Don't repay evil with evil. Take no thought for you, he says, for what is, what is noble in the sight of all. If something is good for you, but it's not good for the greater group, you need to reconsider, Paul says. The trouble with the competitive society in which we live is that I may get the gold medal and stand on this podium and be real proud of what I have done, but if I have not lifted up my brother and sister in the process, then I may have failed, though I wear the gold medal. And so it is that you and I are supposed to have oversight for the world, for our community, for our church, for our family, not just for ourselves. And again, I, that's the reason when I asked Ben to read this passage earlier on in a call to worship. Because the call to worship says, when I, am in the, when I am in the consciousness of God, my brothers and sisters are not far off and forgotten, but close and strongly true. That's the reason I don't like to hear about the social gospel. There is no gospel unless there is sandwich along with salvation. One cannot say, here, my friend, I will, I will love you and not give you a fish. I will give you a stone instead. Beloved, he says, as far as possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Now, Paul was smart enough to know that you can't always live peaceably with people. So he adds that little parenthetical expression as, as, as far as possible for you. There are always the bullies and there are always the cantankerous neighbor to live with. So you can't live at peace with those people. And I guess the most difficult moral decisions we have to make is how to live with people when they don't want to be at peace with us. And that's one of the reasons this bunch of moral and ethical teachings I think are grouped here together. These are some of the guidelines for us when we want peace and others won't let us have peace. I learned one of the most valuable lessons from a deacon. Yeah, preachers can learn from deacons. One time when uh, this deacon and I had a disagreement and it was obvious in a business meeting. We weren't ugly with each other, we weren't rude with each other, but we were pretty curt with each other. So that they, everybody in the congregation, everybody in that meeting knew that we were at odds with each other and pretty good at odds with each other. And I brewed over that that night and the next morning went to a friend and said to him, 
you know, told him the situation, and he said, Kirk, you know what you need to do. And I said, what is that? And he said, you know what you need to do. You need to go talk to the deacon and get it ironed out. And I said, in my wonderful Christian demeanor, I said, I'm not going to do that. You know, I am not going to do that. Got back to my office at the church. Ten minutes later, phone ring. The deacon's on the other line. He said, Kirk, we need to talk. I'm going to be at your office in ten minutes. When he came, he said something to me that I've never forgotten. He said, Kirk, last night people saw us in that business meeting. They saw us in a contentious mood. And we have an opportunity to, to teach this church something. He said, if we walk up and down the hall, cold to each other, perfunctory grin, handshake, howdy do, People will know that. They will sense it. But if we can teach them that as Christians we can disagree and still be friends, we will teach them a valuable lesson. And it just made me learn that deacons can teach you something. And it just poured coals on my head that my deacon was far more Christian than ever possibly could be because he was right as much as is possible live peaceably with each other and sometimes when you think it's not possible because the other guy's wrong you need to go to him and work it out beloved never avenge yourself but leave it to the wrath of god for it's written vengeance is mine i will repay saith the lord vengeance and revenge is the is the root of so much pain in this world, especially international pain. Then he goes on, No, if the enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. It's not giving food and drink to your friend or your family member, your church member, but to your enemy. Jesus has already said this. Paul is simply reiterating it. How difficult it is. But Paul adds something onto this, and it is true. It's a biblical statement. He says, by doing this, you put burning coals on his head. In other words, you embarrass him. You shame him. I'm not sure that's the best motivation, but it is a motivation for being good to people. It really does surprise people when you're good to them instead of repaying them with evil. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil. Paul says, but overcome evil with good. Often what we try to do to defeat evil is pick up the weapons of evil and strike out. And both of us lose at that point. If we, like Jesus, can look at people who treat us and mistreat us, when we can look at evil and overpower it with good like he did, we will be on track So you can see why, as I read this passage of scripture, I came to understand that not just deaf people say, huh. Because this is a powerful passage of scripture. It's a passage of scripture that says some things about how you treat your enemies, how you treat your friends, how you look to God. And it will cause you to go, huh. Shall we pray? Our Father, let us take your word 
for what it is, your word. Let us let it guide us in all of our affairs with our friends and with our enemies. Teach us, our Father, the mystery of your word. In Christ's name, amen.